Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to 2 Samuel 23. title of the sermon, Leading Under God. Uh, Today we read the final written words of David, King of Israel. Last time we were together, we read a psalm in the book of 2 Samuel 22, which parallels the psalm, Psalm 18. Uh, We do not know when that was written specifically. We presume it was written later in David's life, just based upon where it finds itself in the book of 2 Samuel as David is looking back upon deliverance and restoration. However, it does not mention the events of Absalom. When he talks about the deliverance, he speaks of deliverance from his enemies. He speaks of deliverance from Saul. It is theorized by some that maybe it was written a little bit earlier in David's life, just after he had been completely established as king over over all of Israel, and he had entered into Jerusalem. I am still of the opinion, I lean toward the idea that he wrote it later on in his life. However, it's quite possible it was written at the peak of David's blessing just before his sin with Bathsheba and everything began going downhill. Now, if this were the case, the reason why it would be placed so late in the book of 2 Samuel would be in order that it might serve to compare the psalm of 2 Samuel 22 with David's final words in 2 Samuel 23. He wrote the words of 2 Samuel 22 with an air of rejoicing in the deliverance of his God. He, he writes the words of 2 Samuel 23 with a tone of somber gratefulness for God's mercy. And within this somber reflection comes a lesson which we all need to learn. It's a lesson which, as one looks through history, forms the foundation for the success and blessing which our nation, particularly the United States of America, once enjoyed. It's a lesson which has been lost upon this generation, even in large part this generation of the church. And today we're going to consider it together. It's a timely message considering that we just came out of a very tumultuous election season, but it's one which certainly can be appreciated at any time. And we read in chapter 23 of Second Samuel, verse 1, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said. These are the last written words of David. He uh, very likely spoke other verbal words before uh, he died, but these are the last words that he penned, the last words he wrote down. And as such, we would expect it to be quite important, would we not? A person's last words are often very important. We put heavy weight upon a person's last words, and rightfully so. If you could choose your last words, if you had the choice of what your last words would be, what would they be? I can guarantee you that if you had the chance to say anything, it would be something meaningful, would it not? You, would say, you wouldn't say something silly, you wouldn't say something trite, you wouldn't say something meaningless. You would say something as your final record that communicated something to those who would come after you. Something important, something meaningful, or something that characterized who you were. And this is David's final opportunity, and he does exactly that. His final communication, what would he say? Well, he begins by identifying himself. He identifies himself. This is how he sees himself. And once again, I don't mean to strain at gnats here, but there is some significance to how he views himself here. Let's put ourselves into David's shoes here, into David's sandals for a moment. His final words. He has a chance to identify himself. How will he do it? If you were going to label yourself, identify yourself, if you were going to, if I could put it this way, express your own legacy on the tombstone and it says, Here lies so-and-so. And you often see things such as loving father and husband. He or she, loving mother and wife, desired to identify themselves with their family. That's 
how they saw themselves, and that's how they wanted the generations to remember them. So David says here, first David, the son of Jesse. He first identifies himself with his family in relation to his earthly connections. I am the son of Jesse. Then he says, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of the God of Jacob. He identifies himself secondly with God's goodness in relation to his divine connection, to that promise God had made him that he would be king, that he would be the Lord's anointed to lead his people Israel. But it's interesting because it's more, it seems more his connection to God here. He doesn't mention Israel. He mentions being the anointed of the God of Jacob. He is God's chosen man. But then when he connects himself to Israel, he says that he is the sweet psalmist of Israel. As he relates himself to God's people, he does so through his God-given gift, which was to leave behind for the generations a great number of psalms for them to sing, extolling the greatness of their God. And it's interesting, is it not, that his final act of self-identification, he doesn't necessarily say the king of Israel. He says the sweet psalmist of Israel, the anointed of God. But in context of his relationship with the nation as their psalmist, not their king. And we gain more insight about these final words in verse 2. David introduces himself and then he says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue. So we find in this verse one of the positive proofs in the Old Testament about the scriptures being inspired. We do not see many writers who um, acknowledge the reality of inspiration. In other words, they acknowledge that the Spirit is writing or speaking through them. Now we see it in the prophets simply because they say, thus saith the Lord. But here David acknowledges that as, as he writes these next words, the Spirit is speaking by him, is speaking through him here. This is the essence of Holy Spirit inspiration. That David is writing the words, but he is moved along, he is borne along by the Spirit of God. And as we see evidenced several times in Scripture, these men knew that they were writing in the Spirit. Their wills were not overridden. They were not turned into automatons. Uh, They did not become divine robots, but they were filled with the Spirit and led of the Spirit to express the very words of God. And so this final message that David is writing here, as he identifies himself and he says, these are my final words, these final words are being written by him as a tool of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is speaking these words. And we know that, of course, because they're in Scripture. And he begins saying this in verse 3. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just. Ruling in the fear of God. So understand what's happening here because we've had two verses that speak of God speaking, but they're speaking in different contexts. In verse 2, David states that the Spirit is speaking by him as a way of introducing the fact that what he's about to say is, is God. This is God speaking. In verse 3, David says, God spoke to me and this is what he told me. So he's saying God spoke by me, the next text, and then within that text that God spoke by him, God spoke to him, and a part of the Spirit-inspired message was this message. David calls God the same thing in this passage that he does in 2 Samuel 22. He calls God the rock of Israel. God the rock. And he says this. This is what God told David. He that ruleth over men must be just. Ruling in the fear of God. As we read these words which God spoke to David, notice he didn't say, he that ruleth over Israel must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He simply said, if you rule over men, you need to be just. And you need to rule in the fear of God. And notice that link. Take careful note of that link between being a just ruler and being a God-fearing ruler. 
By God's decree, a man that rules over other men must be just. And by God's design, a man will be just, will only truly be just when he recognizes that he has accountability of his own. And so he will judge in the fear of God because he understands that the, even if he's at the top, there's someone higher. That compels a man to justice. We'll come back to that concept in our application. But, but this is the message that David received of the Lord. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Then as God continues to speak to David, he tells David more about this just God-fearing ruler in verse 4. He says, And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. The just God-fearing ruler is like a cloudless sunrise, David says. And God says here, as, as this is still God's message to David. And he says, as the blades of grass which pop up and glisten after the rain. Not only was David a great poet, but so too is our God as he uses the beauty of his created order to express the nuances of his point. He says here that the just and God-fearing ruler is one who, like a cloudless sunrise, illuminates the world in a blaze of warming light. If you've ever sat to watch the sun rise in the morning, you know it to be a time when the colors of the world are at their best. As the rays hit a hillside or, or the top of the water, the whole of creation seems to gleam. So it is, David says, with the people whose ruler is just, the ruler who fears God, the people are at their best. He then likens the just and God-fearing ruler to the grass which springs up after the rain. Uh, they, these blades of grass, they are new, they are tender, they're filled with young life, they're filled with brilliance, they're still glistening with the dew. They are untrampled by feet, untouched by the elements of the world around them. So too are the people whose ruler is just, ruling in the fear of God. David goes on, he says, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me, made with me, excuse me, an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. David humbly acknowledges, however, that his house has not characterized this, the fullest of this statement. Though he had many years of obedience, the latter end of his reign had been characterized by the consequences of disobedience. Nevertheless, David encourages himself in the Lord with the reality that God has sworn to David and to his house an everlasting covenant, one which would remain in effect despite the unfaithfulness of David. It was an unchanging covenant that God had promised, and despite even the possible unfaithfulness of his seed. He calls the covenant ordered in all things and sure. We taught not too long ago the nature of covenants when we were in 2 Samuel 7. Talked about the five primary covenants that God has made with man and how we relate to them. You can certainly go back and listen to that message if you uh, don't recall it or weren't here for it in LegacyBaptistChurch.net. The covenant promised blessing for obedience, chastening for disobedience, but that it would always remain. For it was indeed an everlasting covenant. And we'll see as we get into our application that the end of this, as David looks forward, as he says, I, I have not lived out the, the, the fullest realization of God's expectation of a ruler. He looks toward the one in his line who would. And that's Jesus Christ. So David sees this covenant as the source of his redemption and of his salvation. Even though he has fallen short, his covenant redeems him. This covenant that God has promised with him redeems him from those failures. That though the end of his days were mired in unfaithfulness, yet he fully understood that his seed was still special to God. And he looked forward to that seed. He looked forward to that redemptive reign. The reign of the one who would be called Messiah a meaning far deeper than just Him. 
David knew when God gave that covenant in 2 Samuel 7 that David and his posterity would stay on the throne of Israel, that it would be an everlasting throne. David knew what that meant. What that meant was Messiah was coming through him. And David was awed and humbled by such a privilege. So here in David's final words, he declares this everlasting covenant to be his salvation and all his desire. He acknowledges that this covenant had not yet fully come to fruition, that God has not fully made that covenant to grow, but there is still hope, and he sees the reality of this covenant as his final redemption. Now, I I would like to note before we move past this verse that if you were to look at some other translations of the Bible, you would find a very different meaning to this verse. This is one of the verses where uh, the meaning is, is changed pretty dramatically. That doesn't happen very often in the Old Testament because the Old Testament Hebrew and Aramaic text is so consistent. But there are some disagreements because Hebrew is a very ambiguous language. It does not have the precision and the clarity of the Greek. Because of that, there are some discrepancies in translation among various scholars. In versions particularly like, say, the English Standard Version or the New English Translation, we find the exact opposite meaning, in fact, to what we read here in the King James. Whereas the King James says to David, uh, David says in the King James, my house has not been faithful In the ESV it says, is not my house faithful? Whereas in the King James, David says, God has not made my house to grow. In the ESV it says, has not God prospered me? And so it takes that negative and it turns it into a a question of expectation or complete expectation. And there's probably some other translations that do this as well. Uh, There's some that that follow the King James. There's some that, that do not. And you'll notice perhaps um, on the screen, maybe more so if you have a King James in front of you, that um, there is not a lot of italics here, which means there's not a lot of translational interpretation as to adding, verse, uh, adding text. It's more how the translator felt the text ought to be reflected. And that happens from time to time, specifically because of the Hebrew's ambiguity. But, if you go back to the ancient versions, if you go back to the oldest text, if you go back to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, they all heavily favor here the the translation as it's rendered in the King James. It's a good translation, and as that is the case, David and, and David's words do make perfect sense, as he says, I have fallen short of God's perfection, but there's coming further perfection. I don't see any reason to assume that the other translations are more accurate in this regard. It is important to see this verse as hopeful and optimistic either way, even in light of David's failures. And we find even deeper confirmation of David's optimism as he contrasts his house, which has failed but been redeemed, mired in failure but found mercy through repentance, with those that have walked stubbornly away from the Lord. And he speaks of these in verses 6 and 7. He says, But the sons of Belial shall all be, excuse me, shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Here David speaks of the sons of Belial. We've spoken of Belial several times throughout our first and second Samuel series. The word literally meaning worthless or empty. It was not um, something that was uh, a word that was handed out lightly. It meant that there was absolute that their existence was worthless in the eyes of God. That they literally had nothing to commend themselves in their existence. It was a a, a great great. Um, insult to be called such. And David contrasts his house with the sons of Belial. His house being a man that did seek and love justice and did desire to fear the Lord with the sons of Belial who have absolutely no justice, no fear of God before their eyes. And that's oftentimes the way that God describes children of Belial as those who have no fear of God before their eyes. They, they have no concept of the fear of the Lord, no concept that there is a higher authority that they answer to. 
David says these men, these leaders are like thorns. They must be thrust away because you can't touch them with your hands. Uh, They're very dangerous. They're damaging. They damage everybody they come in contact with. He says in verse 7 that if a man does touch them, he has to do so by being protected with a fence of iron and a spear. So literally it's like having a shield and a spear and you're kind of jabbing at it because that's the only way you can have any contact with this kind of a leader, these kind of rulers without coming into personal damage yourself. And then he carries this illustration as the sons of Belial being thorns. He says that these thorns will be utterly burned with fire. As they are useless, so too they will be they, they will be uh, um, shoved off to the trash heap to the, to the fire bin of history as it were. And what he's saying in these two verses is that those men who oppose God's way will be opposed by God. They will not be successful. In direct contrast to David's house, which will find God's blessing through justice in the fear of the Lord. A very optimistic outlook David has. Whether we regard his words in verse 5 as, I failed, or whether we regard it as, I, uh, I see faithfulness, either way, it points toward the same end, which one day there will be faithfulness. One day there will be perfection of justice and judgment in the fear of the Lord. And this ends David's final words, written under inspiration of the Spirit of God. We'll come back and talk about this more in our application, but first we we need to finish this chapter. And the remaining verses record the names of David's mighty men. As we do so, it's, it's worth noting that there's a second list of David's mighty men that's found in 1 Chronicles 11. And while the lists are very similar, there are actually some differences between them. There's much overlap, but 1 Chronicles adds another 16 names to David's mighty men. And it modifies the list just slightly as well. Uh, there's some controversies among these names. We won't get into all of those controversies. It's a list of names. It's David's mighty men. Um, You can do some of the research on your own if you're truly interested in learning about some of the controversies among the men, uh, uh, their names. Um, Most of the time, as we look at modern scholars today, basically they just say, oh, corruption's entered into the text. Uh, We don't believe that. We don't believe that, that God had inspired his text simply to allow it to become corrupted. But most of the controversies arise simply in the hearts of those who believe this, that the Bible has been corrupted. And the easiest way for them to reconcile these difficulties is to just say, it's corrupt, so ignore it. Well, our purpose in studying the Bible is not to deconstruct the Bible. We might question translation quality, and that's certainly valid, because all the translators, the translators are not inspired. No translator has been as far as the scriptures attest. But to question the content of the Hebrew text itself is to put effort into that which has no profit. If we believe that God has preserved his word, then we believe that any contradiction or problem that arises in the Hebrew or the Greek text is a problem of our understanding, not a problem of God's preservation. And so we trust God's word, and we'll do so this evening. These mighty men are broken up into subsets, and we'll speak about that a little bit. In verses 8 through 17, we read of this first subset, the first, of, uh, first three of David's mighty men. The text says, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains, the same was Edino, the Edsnite. He lifted up his spear against 800, whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines that were there uh, gathered together to battle. And the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines, but he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. And three of the thirty 
chief went down and came to David in the harvest time into the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. And David was there in a hold. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the waters of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men brake through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to the Lord. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that were, went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. Now we consider these three mighty men and the events at hand. Most of these events having taken place early in David's reign or before he became king. Some when he was still in exile. And we read of three mighty men here. The first being this man named Edino the Edsnite, who is also called a Tachmanite. In 1 Chronicles 11, we find the name as uh, Jashobiam, the Hachmanite. We do not know exactly how these names intersect. We do see both. Some people say, well, it's the same man. Obviously, they're both Tachmanites. Uh, other people say, nope, they're two different people. There's, there's, a, there's something else going on here. In 1 Chronicles 11, we find it recorded that this man, um, Jehobiam, uh, slew um, 300 men at one time. Here in 2 Samuel 23, we read of this man slaying 800 men at one time. There's no real reason why both cannot be true if it is the same man, uh, that he would slay 300 at one time in one instance and 800 at one time in another. So there's no reason why this has to be a contradiction. And as we think of a man slaying so many, not necessarily without help, but certainly outnumbered, we understand that these men were not just physically capable men, but they were spiritually yielded men in faith to be used of the Lord. And he had promised, remember, in the law, that five men would chase a hundred, that one hundred men would put ten thousand to flight if they were obeying the Lord. As such, these men were mighty not so much because of their physical strength, not so much because of their stature and their muscles and their abilities, but because of their faith in the Lord that they could stand their ground before crazy odds and believe that God would deliver them in faith. And that made them mighty men. Men of valor, valiant men, men willing to stand for what God had promised and obey it. And so this man, Adino the Ednite, is lifted as uh, he, he's listed as the chief of the captains, the top, the very peak, the pinnacle of David's mighty men. The second was a man named Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahohite. He was a man who defied the Philistines, the scriptures tell us. He stood his ground while the rest of Israel fled in battle. And the scriptures say that he fought so hard to defeat his enemies that when he was finished, his hand stuck to his sword. I don't know if you've ever had a long day of perhaps digging where you've been digging a lot with a shovel or uh, even maybe using a chainsaw and you're gripping tight as you're cutting a bunch of trees. And at the end, it's like you have to peel your hands off of that instrument because they have literally like locked, the, the joints have locked in place. That's what happened to this guy. He fought for so long and so hard that literally his hand was stuck onto his sword and they had to peel, he had to peel his hand off the sword. It was so stiff and hard to let go. And, and he had fought this great battle. He had stood against the Lord's enemies and God wrought a great victory, the scriptures say, through him. And then once he defeated everyone, all the people of Israel came back and took all the spoil, um, which sounds a lot like the people of Israel, doesn't it, uh, throughout their history. The third of these great three, that the top tier of David's mighty men, was a man named Shammah. Now, this man is not listed in the First Chronicles account. He's listed here as Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together and there was a piece of land, the scriptures tell us, and it was full of lentils. The people of Israel fled the field, yielding it to the control of the Philistines, but Shammah was unwilling to do so. So he stood his ground. And I don't really know why he was so urgent to save a bunch of lentils, but either way, he stood his ground and the scriptures say he slew the troop through the power of the Lord. He slew the troop, he stood his ground 
the Lord wrought a great victory through him. And then the scriptures describe that these three men came together to do something valiant for David. The Philistines were pitched in Rephaim, and they held control of the city of Bethlehem. city of Bethlehem, of course, being the place where David grew up. He was born and raised in Bethlehem. And in clear distress, one day he says out loud that he longed to drink of the well outside the gate of Bethlehem. Now, most likely, the direct, the explicit meaning of what he said is, I'm very upset that my birth city is under control of the Philistines. But these three men took his desire to heart. And so they broke through the lines of the Philistines, fought off who knows how many men for one purpose and one purpose only, to draw from the well of Bethlehem some water for their captain to drink. You can imagine how confusing of a sight that must have been for the Philistines. They break through the lines The Philistines are fighting them, and literally two guys are fighting while one guy is drawing water from a well. They get the water, and then they just run off. It's kind of a strange thing, but that's what David longed for, and they wanted to meet. They loved their leader so much. They wanted to meet this desire of his heart. David was deeply, deeply blessed by this sacrifice, so much so that he refused to drink the water. Now, in our culture, we'd say, wow, that's kind of rude. They, they fight for this water. They hazard their lives and David pours it out when he gets it. He doesn't even drink it. But this would not have at all been an offense to these three men. As a matter of fact, this would have been the greatest of honors. David says he would not drink it because they had hazarded their lives. So instead of drinking it, he gives it as a sacrifice unto the Lord. He pours it out unto the Lord. And what he's saying here is this. This water, this thing that I like, this thing that I wanted so much, do you know what's more important than this water? It's the lives of these three men I love. And so I am going to be more thankful to the Lord that these men came back safe than that I got the water. And so I'm giving the water to the Lord, saying, thank you, Lord, that these three men are safe. That was the idea here. That was why David did this. It was an expression of his deep love for these men. And those men would have taken it as such. So those are the three of David's mightiest men. In the next uh, several verses, we read of the next three, the next tier down. Verses 18 through 24. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief among three. And he lifted up his spear against 300 and slew them and had the name among three. Was he not the most honorable of three? Therefore he was their captain, howbeit he attained not unto the first three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabziel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in the time of snow. And he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. But he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and had the name among the three mighty men. He was more honorable than the thirty, but he attained not unto the first three, and David set him over his guard. Azahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. And then it goes on um, to begin a list here. Uh, the next set of three that we find here begins with Abishai, brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah. Uh, This is the guy that we've been reading about for several chapters now, that every time somebody offends David, he wants to lop the guy's head off, right? That's Abishai, and David has to keep saying, what have I to do with you, Abishai? You and your brothers, your bloody men. But Abishai was deeply loyal to David. As a matter of fact, we also read just a, a couple of chapters ago that David was standing before one of the sons of Goliath, and David was weary because he was getting old, and he was about to be killed, and Abishai came in and slew that son of Goliath, and saved his king. We read here of him lifting his spear against 300 men, slaying them in the power of the Lord. It also says that he was the greatest of this next tier. So you had that first tier of men, and then in the second tier of men, Abishai was the greatest of that tier. 
Then we read of Benaiah. He's the son of Jehoiada. Uh, he was mightier than the 30, the text says, elevated above them and yet not as mighty as the first three. He did many acts, one of them being uh, slaying two lion-like men of Moab, the text says. He uh, also actually jumped into a pit with a lion and killed that lion in the time of snow. And then he slays an Egyptian warrior. We don't learn much about the Egyptian warrior here, but if you go to the First Chronicles account, the scriptures tell us that the, this warrior was five cubits tall and he uh, brought his own spear into battle. That spear as a weaver's beam, just like Goliath's spear was described. And literally what the text says is that um, Benaiah went into that battle with this Egyptian with just a staff, right? So like a, like a shepherd's staff. And he's fighting this man with a spear with just his staff and he literally takes his staff gets the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and then kills the Egyptian with his own spear. And of course, the Egyptian at five cubits would have been some eight feet tall or so. Uh, would have been a big, big guy. And so Benaiah um, had some valor about him as well. Now, the third of the three is not as clear. The next name on our list is a man named Azahel. You perhaps remember Azahel. And he's listed as one of the 30. But after Azahel actually comes 30 more names. And so we would understand Azahel to be the captain of the 30 and likely one of that top tier. So he's one of those three, but he is listed um, among the other men, likely as the leader of those men, the 31st man. Now, we don't read much of him in the text because if you recall, he was killed very early. He was killed while David was still king in Hebron. Remember, Azahel was the youngest brother of Joab. You had Joab, you had Abishai, and you had Azahel, the three brothers. And they were all sons of Zeruiah, who was David's sister. So these are all the nephews of David. And Azahel, when Abner lost a battle, Abner being Ishbosheth's captain, Saul's captain before him, the leader of the rebellion against David, Abner flees for his life, and Azahel runs after him. And as they're running, remember, Abner looks back at Azahel and says, Look, you need to stop chasing me. Kill that guy, kill that guy, but if you chase me, I'm going to kill you. I'm warning you. You're going to die if you continue to chase me. As El ignores him, Abner turns around and kills him. And that ends up being the reason why Joab kills Abner in dishonor. Abner killed Azahel in honor. It was in battle. He warned him. He didn't want to kill him. He did it for his life's sake. Then Joab dishonorably stabs Abner in the back um, because of that in, in revenge. So that was Azahel. And he is listed among David's mighty men. But, but can I just mention here, and I think I was going to mention this a little bit more, but do you notice who's not in this list? And he will not be in this list at all? Joab's not there. Joab was David's captain of his host. But he's not in this list. Remember a few uh, weeks ago, one of my points was don't be anything like Joab. Joab, for all of his might, was not a good man. Not a man of faith. He was a man that was dishonorable. And he does not get the privilege of being listed among David's mighty men. Even though the majority of David's life, Joab was his top general. It's an interesting thing. So we continue through this list here and we see the, the names of these other 30. These 30 mighty men. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. He, of course, would have been well known to David because David grew up in Bethlehem as well. We continue in verses 25 through 39 just with the list. Shama the Haradite, Elka the Haradite, um, Elka, excuse me, the Haradite, Helez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh the Tekoite, Abiezer the Anethothite, Mebunei the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Mahara Ai, the Neph Netophathite, Heleb, the son of Baana, a Netophathite, Itai, the son of Ribai, out of Gibeah of the children of Benjamin, Benaiah, the Pir Pirathonite, Hidei, of the brooks of Gaash, Abialbon, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Barhumite, Eliaba, the Shealbanite, of the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shama, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharer, the Hararite, Eliphalet, the son of Ab uh, Ahazbei, 
the son of the Maacathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezrai, the Carmelite, Pearai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Bearathite, armor-bearer to Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, and Ithrite. So his armor-bearer is there, but not him, interestingly enough, huh? Gareb and Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 30 and 7 in all. As we consider this list, we've made mention in previous sermons of the two names that stand out most definitively. Uriah the Hittite is on this list, isn't he? The very one that David had murdered was one of his greatest warriors. But who else is on this list but Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, right? And Ahithophel was, of course, David's counselor who wanted to kill David. Why? Well, because David's, Ahithophel's son, Eliam, had a daughter named Bathsheba. And so Ahithophel's granddaughter was Bathsheba. His son was one of David's mighty men. Bathsheba's husband was one of David's mighty men. He sinned against the daughter of Eliam. He sinned against the granddaughter of Ahithophel. He sinned against the wife of Uriah. These men who loved him, who hazarded their lives for him, who put everything aside so that they could follow this leader. And three of them were deeply affected by his sin with Bathsheba. And so we find the greatest advantage of this list and the greatest help in this list to be seeing those names and understanding the context within which they are. And that ends the chapter and brings us to our application this evening. And I'd like us to consider five points. Uh, they'll be a little bit, um, they won't, one won't necessarily follow right after the other. We'll hit various points here. The first one that we need to just lay out here, it's a great opportunity for us to mention it, to remind ourselves that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. David mentions in verse two that he is speaking these things by the Lord, that the spirit of the Lord spake by him. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That literally says in the text, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. That doesn't mean sinless. It means complete. Truly furnished unto all good works. The scriptures self-attest to the fact that they are God-breathed. The doctrine of inspiration does not claim that men became robots. It simply claims that God bore them along as he inspired them to write his scriptures. And we know this from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Peter's writing, he says, For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They heard, thus saith the Lord, and they wrote what God told them to write. Thus saith the Lord. They were moved, literally born along. And again, we're not, we're not talking dictation here. Explicitly, what we are talking about is men who have been overshadowed by the Spirit of God and, and within the context of their own culture, within the context of their own character, they express the words of the Lord in the way that God would have them to do so. And I mentioned already, there are only a few times in Scripture where men self-attest to the fact of inspiration, other than prophets simply saying, thus saith the Lord, which was oftentimes the exclamation of a vo vocal prophet, of a speaking prophet. Paul mentions a couple of times that he's writing by the Spirit of God. And David does so as well as we see here in 2 Samuel 23. Now these instances don't prove anything, but they give us insight into what inspiration is. That these men were aware that they were speaking, uh, that the Spirit was speaking through them, yet still fully in control of their personality and their faculties and their will. The doctrine of inspiration thus states that the Scriptures were penned by men, but written by God Himself, and so they are therefore, or were therefore, inerrant, without error, and infallible in every area which they touch. That means if they speak to science, they are accurate as to science. If they speak to history, they are accurate as to history. That God has not made a mistake when he had the words of God penned. And in, indeed, if the Bible was written fallibly, 
And if it was simply written by a bunch of slanted and biased old Jewish men based on their cultural biases over the course of 1,900 years of history, then our entire faith is really baseless. We have no foundation upon which to stand. We're just standing upon a bunch of old dead guys. But this is not the case for on the authority of the word of God itself, we understand that the scriptures have been inspired and so we believe that every word written by these holy men was written with God's approval. Now as we assert this, that is inspiration. Inspiration stops with the men who wrote the original manuscripts. The original manuscripts were inspired. But we can't just stop there when we're understanding our Bibles. We must understand, secondly, the doctrine of preservation. The doctrine of inspiration states that the scriptures were infallible and inerrant in their original forms when they were originally written. And there's not a lot of disagreement among conservative Christians with that today. But where there is great disagreement, and this comes to a big part of the reason why we use the King James Bible is with the doctrine of preservation. The doctrine of preservation. Where many Christians stumble is that they believe that the Bible has been consistently corrupted over the thousand years between when the Scriptures were written and when the printing press made the Scriptures indelible. And this is where we flee to the Scriptures to learn that not only has God claimed that He has inspired the original text of the Bible, but he also promised to preserve them for every generation. Psalm chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. David writing again here, the inspired psalmist. He says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That's inspiration. Thou shalt keep them, he says. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. That's preservation. Infallible, inerrant, and preserved. So we can trust that in the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, in fact, the world today still has every word which God intends us to have. The Word of God has not been hopelessly lost. The Word of God is not inaccessible to us, and we simply have man's best guess. We believe at Legacy Baptist Church that the inspired and preserved Word of God is found in the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that undergird the King James Version of the Bible. And this is why we use it. We don't use the King James because we believe it itself is inspired by God. We believe it is the most accurate and faithful translation of the inspired text, which we believe to be most accurately and faithfully preserved in the Greek Textus Receptus and the Hebrew Masoretic Text. The other translations of the Bible today have gone and used a different Greek text, often called the critical text, which is a compilation of many texts which we believe to be deeply corrupted. And it causes us great angst to think that these deeply corrupted texts are given a vote with the ones that we believe to have been preserved through God's church and handed down now by a group of scholars in Germany, in the Nesselalande at least, not the UBS text, and this concerns us. And so we use the King James Bible because it is founded upon the Greek and Hebrew texts that we believe to be to bear the marks of God's preservation as He promised to do. We get into that more. Uh, actually, on Tuesday nights right now, we're doing that. We're talking about that. We'll have one more week of talking about the Bible, and then we're moving on as we're talking about kind of uh, where we stand at Legacy Baptist Church. So we needed to kind of lay that out. It's always a great opportunity whenever it comes up to remind ourselves why we do what we do um, and to remember as well that there are, there are, are um, dangers on both ends. If we get too rigid to explicitly the translation quality of the King James... Uh, we, we're not very on firm ground anymore. And at the same time, when we look at some of these other translations, which are good English translations, but we understand that there are many, many errors in the text that they translate from. Point two. If you have any questions about that, please see me. A good ruler is a just leader. And a just leader understands that he will also be judged. So a good leader is an accountable leader. When God tells David that a ruler over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God, he's equating justice on earth with the fear of God in heaven. 
Time and again, history bears out that good leaders are men who lead under accountability. The founders of our country understood this, and that is, in fact, why they created the system of government that they did, called the separation of powers or enumerated powers. The reason why our founders did that is so that there would always be accountability for each element of the leadership of our, of our country. It, it, they saw the wisdom of verses like this that say that a ruler must be just ruling in the fear of the Lord, that there must be accountability First falling upon the states, then eventually upon the individual. Though the leader of this country is intrinsically accountable to the people for his actions, and that's how our nation has been established, the problem, of course, is that a man is only as accountable to the people as the people will hold him accountable. In other words, he's still free to do what he wants within the limits of the people's willingness to let him. And we've seen this in the past eight years of leadership, right? Our current president has taken great liberties with his power that are illegal according to the Constitution of the United States, and yet the people have not been willing to hold him accountable, and so he's had free reign to do so. And this is where accountability among humanity crumbles. Because as society becomes more corrupt, the leader can become more corrupt until one day it's over, and this is what we saw in Rome, if you've ever read of the history of Rome, it was simply a process. Rome literally voted themselves into totalitarianism, if you've ever done the study. They literally passed a law that said, Caesar is in charge. And so as we consider that, we understand that corruption, accountability is only as good as the men that are holding accountable. But when a leader regards God's authority, everything changes, doesn't it? Because God sees all and he knows all. He knows what's happening in the dark corners as well as he knows what's happening in the light. He knows what's happening in that backroom conversation just as much as he knows about what's happening before the accountability of the people. And so when a man regards that higher authority, when he knows he answers to God, he begins ruling in the fear of the Lord and he has an intrinsic justice about him because he knows that he'll answer to God whether or not the people hold him accountable. Consider with me what the Proverbs say about the wisdom of fearing the Lord. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God is always watching. He's watching everything. And when a ruler understands this, it changes the way he leads, doesn't it? Proverbs 16.12, It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, For the throne is established by righteousness. God finds kings who commit wickedness abominable, but establishes the throne of the righteous. And if a king believes this, if he understands this, if a ruler recognizes that ruling in righteousness is what God wants, it changes the way he rules when he understands he has a higher authority. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way. And the froward mouth, David says, or Solomon says, excuse me, do I hate? Do you see the links? God sees all and he knows all. God finds wickedness as an abomination to him. So the righteous leader who fears the Lord will hate evil because God hates evil and God is in charge. So when a king who fears the Lord uh, lives out his rule, he understands that God rules over him just as he rules over his people. And if God rules over him, then whether or not his people like what he's doing, whether or not his people agree, whether or not they hold him accountable, he is accountable to God. And if he's accountable to God, then he better please God, because he's going to answer. And when he does this, the people are happy. Evil flees into the darkest corners. Righteousness is allowed to flourish. And what does this look like? Well, it looks like how David ruled in the first half of his life. The people were prosperous, they were happy, they were content. It looks like how Solomon ruled in the first half of his life. The people were happy, they were prosperous, they were content. It looks like how the beginning of our nation began. People were happy, they were prosperous, they were content. And we read an apt description of this sort of man, of this sort of king, written in Daniel chapter 4, ironically written by King Nebuchadnezzar who, if uh, I believe, just based upon how God describes his kingdom in the scriptures to be the greatest king, perhaps besides Solomon, that ever lived. 
Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote this. After the Lord had descended him into madness and he came out of that, he said, At the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven and my understanding returned unto me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him that liveth forever whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. This is the voice of a king who got it who understood it. He finally recognized, and God brought him to his knees before he would, that he was accountable to a higher God, a higher king, and that he will answer to that king for how he leads. And the same is true, by the way, not just of kings, but of pastors, of bosses, of fathers, mothers. We answer to a higher authority, and it ought to change the way we, we lead. If we lead like we answer to a higher authority, it will change. It will change our honesty. It will change our actions. It will change our effort because we understand that we are accountable. So a good leader is a just leader, and a just leader understands that he also will be judged. A just, God-fearing ruler will produce a happy, content, and prosperous people. I mentioned this already, that when a king actually understands that he is accountable to God, and so he leads under this accountability, there will be a noticeable effect upon that nation. And for the sake of time, I will give you only one verse. It's sufficient to hit the point. Proverbs 29.2 When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. It's pretty clear. I don't think we need much more on that point. Point number four. I want to get into today, but we're not going to go there. Um, point number four, men are supposed to be valiant. Men are supposed to be valiant. Uh, this point I speak in, I guess, a little bit in passing as well. Uh, we live in a society that glorifies the effeminization of men. Men are being effeminized today. We read in this passage a list of 37 men who were valiant. They were courageous. They were strong. They were men of conviction. They were men of faith. They obeyed and trusted God. And God through them was able to work. And did you notice that Joab wasn't one of David's mighty men? And it wasn't because he wasn't a good soldier. And it wasn't because he wasn't a big, strong, handsome guy. It was because he wasn't a man of integrity and of faith. So he wasn't one of David's mighty men. He wasn't. He was tough, he was a fighter, he was violent, but he had no ethics, he had no morals, he didn't fear, and he didn't trust God. He took matters into his own hands, and that is not a valiant man. We need men who are courageous today. We need men willing to fight for what is right, who are willing to stand for what is right, who are willing to face the opposition. Men who are strong, men who endure, but all is only valiance when it is in the context of a man who fears God, who has faith, and who is faithful to his responsibilities. Valiant men are faithful to their families. Valiant men are faithful to their church. Valiant men are most of all faithful to God. Valiant men aren't afraid to fight for truth, but they are also compassionate. They are gentle. They are gracious. Valiant men are men who follow the example of these men and who follow the example that God has laid down. Our God is all-powerful, is He not? But did, we, did not we learn last week in 2 Samuel 22 as we consider God that He is what we kind of termed a gentle giant? That He is gentle, that He is gracious, He is merciful. He destroys evil and He is angry at evil, but He is gentle among the righteous. He is angry at sin every day, but He is most deeply characterized as kind and as good. The valiant man is a man of faith. He's a man of obedience. He's a man of fortitude. Being strong does not make you a man. Being tall doesn't make you a man. Having money doesn't make you a man. Dominating others doesn't make you a man. 
Wearing pink doesn't make you a man, right? Tough guys wear pink. It doesn't make, doesn't make you a tough guy to wear pink. It really doesn't. Not crying does not make you a man. Those are some things that might characterize men, but that's not the measure of a man. The measure of a man is a man of character, integrity, faithfulness, and obedience. And until you're there, you haven't really become a valiant man. And men, we're supposed to be valiant. The feminization of men in this culture is not just embarrassing, it's abhorrent to God. And it has touched the church at every level, has it not? Women lead today. And that's not surprising because when you look at churches, when you look at spiritual life, the men drift first. Women have a deeper connection, it seems, to the spiritual. Men will be the ones to drift first. The women will be the ones to try to hold the fort for longer. But when you see churches and when you see families where the women are driving the spiritual life of that home or that church, there is something deeply, deeply wrong with the men. If they're even there. If they're not there, of course, there's something, there's something deeply wrong. There is something spiritually wrong wrong. Now, you know, we could qualify. And, uh, during the family conference, we t- we, or the family weeks, we qualified this. Women, you are not inferior to men. You know that. God loves you. You are held in high esteem. As a matter of fact, as the scriptures describe it, you are more honorable. You are precious. You're precious to God. You're supposed to be precious to men. You're not inferior. And we are not even here saying that women are, are um, implicitly incapable or anything like that. But God has designed men and women to be different, haven't they? Hasn't he? They are different. God has designed a different role for men and for women. And it's simply put, if you can be content in the role that God has given you, you will find greater joy and contentment in that role than you could ever have Yielding it. And men, our role is to be valiant, to be strong, to be faithful, to lead, to protect as much spiritually as physically. That is our role. And that's what it means to be a valiant man. Being effeminate is one of the sins for which Paul states in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, men will not see the kingdom of God. And when men will not step up and morally lead a nation morally lead a culture, morally lead a church, morally lead a family, that institution, mark it down, will, will soon come to ruin. Not because women are inferior, but because it's not what they've been designed to do. It's not what God has made them for. Final point. As God is speaking to David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, and he says, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of the Lord. We mentioned this already. You know what God is is telling David of Jesus here? We must never forget that every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is intended to direct our knowledge to God's work of redemption. The whole of the Bible, the whole of history revolves around the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're trying to undo that even in the historical range today, right? They're getting rid of B.C. and A.D. and they're making it B.C. and, and B.C. Um, uh, B.C.E. and C.E., excuse me, to try to take out before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord and make it before Common Era and Common Era. But do you know what they can't do? Regardless of how successful they are at getting rid of those little initials, they can't actually take away the fact that there's a zero on our calendar and that zero means something. And that zero is the entirety of history revolving around Jesus Christ's coming. History revolves around it. Everything from Genesis to Revelation hinges upon the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. David's hope, he hopes in the reality that there is coming a day when the leader of his house would be one of complete justice ruling in the fear of the Lord. And that will be his, his son, David's eventual heir, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is David's hope of salvation. Jesus is David's hope of redemption. And by the way, he's ours as well. 
everything that David failed to do as a king, the son of David, the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, would or will perform impeccably. He will do the will of the Lord. He will rule and reign in justice. And the people will find a prosperity and a joy and a happiness that this world has never seen under the leadership of the great king of kings. When God told David that a ruler must be just, David saw himself as a leader striving to be like Christ. But Christ would be the standard by which all rulers are judged. And let us never forget that. That Jesus Christ is the center of all history. And as he was David's hope of salvation and redemption, so too he is ours as well. That Jesus came to this earth. He lived as a perfect man, never once having sinned, that He died on the cross, a sinner's death, being sent there for our sake. And the Scriptures say that as Jesus hung on that cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Him. That 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That God poured out all of His wrath upon Christ, and Christ bore it in His own body on the tree, that we might bear His righteousness as we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ was buried. that That He died on the cross, that He was buried and He rose again the third day. And as we already considered in this morning's sermon, Jesus said, as many as come to Me, I will in no wise cast out. May God help us. I know that, that, that uh, there's a lot of information this evening. But may God help us as we consider these truths to understand the inspiration of God, to recognize what a good leader is, and to judge leaders by this standard. Christianity today has lost what it, how to judge a good leader. And that's indicative of where we are in our nation today. May we understand what it means to be a valiant man. And may we see, as we should always see, that even here in 2 Samuel, the narrative of Scripture, it's pointing us to the cross. Let's pray.